again turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, as we uh, get started with this uh, study in this uh, book, it's really kind of a continuation, of course, of uh, uh, of our, our study in uh, in the book of Esther. Uh, I just had one question before we begin. Do you know who the shortest man in the Bible is? The shortest man in the Bible. Elijah, do you know? <laughs> well, you know what? That is the shorter, that's shorter than the one I had. I had Nehemiah. But somebody whose shoe height is a lot shorter than Nehi. Thank you, thank you, Elijah. That boy knows his Bible. All right. Well, begin the series based on the book of Nehemiah, okay? Nehemiah. One of the great characters of the Old Testament, I believe, but perhaps not as well known as some others. You know, I've often thought uh, Nehemiah was a, you know, a great man of God, uh, and yet uh, we don't find him really being the, a prophet. Uh, we don't find him being, uh, you know, man like necessarily like Moses or Abraham or some of those uh, patriarchs. Uh, uh, he wasn't really uh, an out there leader, uh, but we find that he uh, was a man who was just kind of an ordinary man. He was a, he was a common worker. Uh, he had just kind of a, an ordinary job. Uh, now, again, I would encourage you to, uh, uh, as you read through the scriptures, read uh, a wonderful uh, uh Three books of the Bible, again, they go, uh, Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Uh, and uh, chronologically, I believe Esther comes between Ezra and Nehemiah. But, uh, but according to how it is in our, in our Bibles, it's, uh, Esther will come after Nehemiah and will, the Lord will, and be able to look at that book as well. But I'm excited about what God is going to teach us as we travel through this particular book. We're going to learn something, I think, that can help us personally. Uh, we can discover some principles that will not only help us understand a critical part of the Old Testament and its history, but help us to grow in our Christian lives as well. Now, a study of this book many times will take place in churches when they're contemplating a building program, right? Uh, because it's all about building walls and so forth. Now, I don't anticipate a building program any time in the near future, but uh, uh, I want us to think about building our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. We still need to be growing and building our personal lives in order to strengthen our church body uh, in the day in which we live. Uh, is there a need for growth in your life? Uh, this morning? Is there a need for spiritual growth in the life of your family and the life of this church family? I believe there certainly is. Now, I've heard, I, I, I know you've probably heard it said, you know, what this church needs is, and then you fill in the blank there, uh, 
or you think about it in a national and a political context, you know, if I were running the country, if I were president, I would do this or I would do that, right? Uh, you probably say, I wouldn't want to touch that office. I wouldn't want to be a president of this country. But, you know, sometimes we think we know more than he does, and we think, you know, if I were president, I'd do this or I'd do that. Or if my child, if you were my child, if that were my child, you know, I'd know what I'd do with them. You know, we always know what to do with other people's children, but sometimes we kind of come up short sometimes what to do with our own children. We're surrounded, uh, whatever environment or society we may live in, by people who can uh, be kind of a class of gripers and complainers and self-proclaimed prophets or backseat drivers. Don't you love backseat drivers? I used to have a, a license to be a backseat driver. Actually, it was a little thing I carried in my wallet. It said, this license, Daryl Fleming, to be a backseat driver. Uh, and maybe you've seen those. Uh, they weren't very official, but, uh, you know, you thought, well, I've got some authority here to tell somebody how to drive. Um, I think all of us would acknowledge in our sinful, fallen human nature that it's easy to analyze, to scrutinize, to talk about all the problems of the world, and even of Christianity worldwide, or to talk about all the problems of the world uh, in our own, and our problems of our own church, perhaps locally. But what the hour in which Nehemiah lived in, and what they needed, And what our hour needs are not people who are just willing to discuss the problems of the universe, but people who will get up and do something about them. You know, that's the need. Not just complain, just not gripe, not just uh, think, well, you know, this is what I would do, but we need to get up and do something for the Lord. Nehemiah was that kind of a man. He saw a problem that was taking place in Jerusalem, And yes, he was distressed about it. He analyzed it. He scrutinized it. He felt a great burden in his heart. But he didn't stop there and began to wallow in his self-pity. But he got up in the midst of his grief and he took some action and he did something about it. Now let me lay down some very early in this study that there is a spiritual principle here. There are many spiritual lessons we can derive from the story of Nehemiah in this little book and the building of the walls of Jerusalem. But there's one first elementary principle, and it's this. Whenever God wants to get work done, he goes to people who are willing to do some work. Whenever God wants to get some work done, he goes to people who are willing to do some work. He lays hold of people who are willing to do something. So many complainers and critics and self-proclaimed prophets and backseat drivers in the world and in the church are able to point out all the problems, but very few are willing to do something about that. Now, if you notice with me, first of all, kind of a little background to the book of Nehemiah. This is kind of a little bit of a review. We just kind of put this in historic context Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram to leave his country and to follow uh, follow him to another land. Abraham obeyed. His descendants were multiplied. Uh, The Israelites were later enslaved in Egypt uh, for over 400 years until God called them out under the leadership of Moses. Eventually, they allowed to enter the land God had promised to them, the land of Canaan. 
Hundreds of years passed during which the nation experienced tr- struggles and faithlessness and, and they wrestled with God. And the high point of Israel's history came when David, a godly king, was called to sit on the throne. And for 40 years, David expanded the nation in both the breadth of influence and the knowledge of God. But things began to go downhill from there. After his son, King Solomon, died, Israel was split into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom with ten tribes, referred to as Israel. And then you have the southern kingdom, has two tribes, and referred to as Judah. And because of their disobedience, the Assyrians conquered Israel, and the ten tribes were scattered, and it became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And even though the southern tribes saw it all this happen, they too continued to rebel against God. In about 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army captured the Jews and Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls were knocked down, the temple was burned, the people were deported, and they were forced into slavery once again. And their history had come full circle as their city was left in ruins. Now, it must have been a traumatic thing for the Jews to see the death and destruction and then be forced to leave their homeland and travel a thousand miles to a foreign country. Many of God's prophets predicted this captivity would not destroy the nation. It would eventually end and the people would be allowed to go back home. And Daniel understood this truth as uh, when he was reading the book of Jeremiah. God did not forsake his people. Uh, He allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians. And there moved in King Cyrus to make a decree to let some of the Jews return. And in three stages, over the a hundred years, they allowed, were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to discover the city had been demolished and was desolate. Living there was dangerous. It was difficult. It was sorrowful. And after the decree of Cyrus, 50,000 Israelites returned to Judah with Zerubbabel, and they began to build the temple. We saw that in the book of Ezra. Unfortunately, they got discouraged and they quit. God then sent them the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and encouraged them to finish the project. Ezra also was sent to help restore their spiritual fervor. Finally, Nehemiah tells his story in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And by now, Persia had replaced uh, Babylon as the great regional power. The Persians ruled with a very different means of control. The commitment of the Persians was to resettle captured people in their native lands. Conquered people would act with a degree of autonomy as long as they were support, uh, they supported the state and they paid their taxes. As we start to look at the book of Nehemiah, God's about to instigate another uh, movement back to the promised land. And so we find this book kind of falls into several divisions. First six chapters are going to cover the rebuilding of the wall. Chapters 7 through 10 will deal with the renewing of Jerusalem's worship with um, uh, the final chapters then addressing the repopulation and revival of God's people. So if you're ready to dive in, I trust you are, and we will begin this morning exactly where we always begin, where we left off in our last study of the book of Ezra, uh, as we uh, find here an emphasis on prayer. It's a wonderful place. I mean, Ezra was a man of prayer. I think we find here that uh, Nehemiah is going to be a man of prayer as well. 
You know, prayer is one of the overriding themes of this book. And it's going to be the secret to Nehemiah's success. Uh, The prayer in chapter 1 is one of 12 different prayers recorded in the book. And it begins with a prayer in Persia, and then it closes with a prayer in Jerusalem. And his prayers were filled with adoration. Uh, you find that in verse eight, uh, chapters not eight and nine, thanksgiving in chapter 12. But we come back to chapter one, and then also in chapter nine, prayer of confession. Uh, and then also petition in chapters one and two. And so these prayers are prayers of anguish, of joy, of protection, of dependence, of commitment. It's a story of compassionate, persistent, personal, and corporate prayer. Prayer gives Nehemiah his perspective. It widens his horizons. It sharpens his vision. And it deals with his anxieties. Nehemiah's public life was the outflow of his personal life, which was steeped in and shaped by a lifestyle of prayer. His devotion to God his dependence on him for everything and for his desire for the glory of God found equal expression. He knew that only ventures that begun in prayer and bathed in prayer throughout were likely to be blessed. I trust we realize that this morning. If we don't, that we will come to know how important prayer is in our lives. And I suggest this morning that Nehemiah went through a process of prayer that uh, has great application and relevance to us today. Notice, first of all, concern about the problem. We see this in verses 1 through 4. And uh, uh, we uh, see there, he, he said in verse 2, he said, I, Hananiah, one of his brethren, had come and he asked them concerning the Jews that escape, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. You see, we already have his concern there. Now, at the end of this chapter, in verse 11, the very end, we realize what Nehemiah did for a living. He was the cupbearer to the king. His job was the job many of you fellows like to take on, right? When all those cookies were made... You said, I think I need to test those to see if they're going to be good enough for the wedding, right? And so there was a lot of cupbearers that did some taste testing. Well, Nehemiah, his responsibility was to taste what the king ate and drank to make sure it wasn't poisoned. Uh, It looks like everybody survived the cookies tasting. But you know, as a cupbearer, Nehemiah had a great job. You know, and really it was kind of a risky job to be sure, you know, what if it was poison? And of course, then that'd be the end of Nehemiah and King would have to get another cupbearer. But uh, he actually had a very intimate access to the royalty and the political standing, a place to live in the palace. It was kind of a cushy job, you'd say. Uh, it pro- he was provided everything he needed. And yet when one of his brothers returns from a road trip to Jerusalem, verse 2 says, 
I asked them concerning the Jews and concerning Jerusalem. The word ask there means to inquire or demand an answer. Nehemiah was greatly concerned about what was happening in Jerusalem. Now, you know, he could have just insulated himself if he chose to and said, well, that's none of my business anymore. I've got, uh, I've got it made here. I've got this nice job and I've got everything I need. I don't worry about those people. But he didn't do that. He sought them out and he wanted to hear a first-hand report. And this is a very important starting place because it's easy for us to just kind of sit back, stay uninvolved and unaware. Uh, some of us don't want to even think about stuff sometimes that's going on in uh, uh, in the, our lives or even the lives of other people, much less take time to investigate what's happening in their lives. And even though Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem, he had heard stories about it. Uh, he knew that his ancestors had been led away in chains when Babylon destroyed it. And he was doing what Jeremiah 51.50 instructs the exiles to do. It says there in Jeremiah 51.50, Remember the Lord afar off, and let Jerusalem come into your mind. It says, don't forget about Jerusalem. Remember it. (coughs) As he thought about Jerusalem, he listened to the report There in verse 3, that the survivors were in great trouble and disgrace, that the wall of Jerusalem was in shambles, its gates had been burned with fire. He tried to imagine the shame of the city of David. He could barely stand it. And it says there, uses the phrase, great affliction. That meant the people had broken down. They were, uh, things were fallen to pieces. And I think three words would summarize the bad news. Remnant, ruin, and reproach. Nehemiah had, was broken over the complacency of Jerusalem. They were living in ruins. They had accepted it. They were willing to kind of walk around in the devastation instead of being concerned enough to do something about their situation. And listen, there's nothing ever going to change in your life or in the life of this church, for that matter, or our nation until we become concerned about the problem. Some of you become complacent about the way your life is going. You're living with rubble. And it doesn't even bother you anymore. I wonder, are you ready to allow God to do some rebuilding in your life? If so, you need to become concerned about the problem. You need to listen to the facts even though you don't want to hear them. Now when he heard this report... It seems to indicate he hit the ground and began to weep. Verse 4, came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and I mourned. The meaning behind this weeping is a bemoaning or lamenting, much like Jesus did when he cried out in painful tears when he observed the hard hearts of Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 41. And he also fasted. In the Old Testament, fasting was only required once a year. But here we see Nehemiah refraining from food for several days. In fact, we know from comparing different dates in this book 
that he wept and fasted and prayed for actually four months. Those are signs of humility and they show his deep concern about the problem. I wonder, you need to do some rebuilding in your life? Are your defenses broken down such as you are allowing practices and sins to control your life this morning? Before you can ask God to rebuild, you must become concerned about the problem. Notice, secondly, there was conviction about God's character. After Nehemiah becomes concerned, he next expresses his conviction of God's character. In verse 5, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Nehemiah called God Lord. He recognized the Lord as his master. In verse 6, he refers to himself as God's servant. He then refers to the Lord as the God of heaven. He acknowledged that his God was beyond earthly realm, above all other gods. He also refers to him as great and terrible. God deserves to be honored and revered and feared by all who because of who he is. And then finally, Nehemiah describes God as one that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. God is truthful. God is faithful. God can be trusted. Now his boss, the king, was the greatest and mightiest on the earth. But compared to God, Artaxerxes was nothing. Nehemiah was in Shushan and his concern is in a far off place in Jerusalem. But both cities, one rich, one poor, one strong and the other weak, one proud and the other broken, actually were like tiny specks of dust under the vast canopy of God's heaven. Listen, when you go to God in prayer, things need to be put in their proper perspective. And because of his conviction about God's character, Nehemiah knew that God was not only able but he was willing to respond to his prayer. But he also knew that he did not deserve to have God treat him favorably. And that's why the next phrase of his prayer is a confession of sin. Like Job, his encounter with the awesome God brings him to a place of repentance and confession. Even as Job writes in Job 42, 5 and 6, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eyes seeth thee, whereof, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And so the next process, or the next step in this process of prayer is confession of sin. After being concerned about the problem, expressing his conviction about God's character, he's now moved to admit his sin and the sins of his people, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7, we find here, he, he, he says, Let thine ear be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray thee now, day and night, by the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. And he says, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest. Now you'll find those those words throughout the Old Testament, the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments. 
Now the Bible is clear that at the root of our global and personal problems is sin. Why are there wars? Why are there terrorist attacks? Sin. Why are there why is there famine in some places? Why are there a great deal of disease going on? It's because of sin. Why are governments and businesses riddled with greed and corruption? It's sin. Why is the mission task of the church, this church, not fulfilled? I believe it's because of sin. On the personal level, why do couples argue and have problems communicating? Sin. Why do kids from Christian homes rebel against God and their parents? It's because of sin. So whatever the problem, you can trace its roots back to sin, either to the original sin of Adam and Eve or directly to the sins of the people with the problems. If God is going to use us to help alleviate uh, any great need, we need to keep clear in our focus that the root of the problem is human sin. You know, we can come up with all kinds of excuses and reasons for these, but you have to go back to the root of the problem, and that's sin. But it's not just the sins of others that we need to be aware of. We also need to be aware of and confess our own sins. Nehemiah included himself with the sins of the people. And staying aware of our own sins keeps us humble before the Lord and others so that we don't sit in judgment against them. We are sinners who have been shown great mercy. And we go to other sinners and we offer God's mercy. We dare not get distracted from the root problem. You know, if we start to thinking that the real need is for better organization, or you know what we really need is more funds, we need more money, or maybe we need better methods, we start concentrating on those things, we start at the wrong place because the root need is for repentance on part of God's people who have forgotten his purpose and are living for their own purposes. And lost people need repentance so that they can be reconciled to God. And Nehemiah's burden stemmed from the feeling of the people's great need. And it focused, he focused on that by seeing the people and his own sin, his, their great sin. Hey, you know, I think it's one thing to be concerned or even to have a firm conviction. You can have a firm conviction of who God is. But I think it's a completely different thing, another thing that to actually confess. Many of us never get this far. We might say, you know, I feel bad about sin. I feel bad about my sins. I feel bad the sins of my family. Uh, we may be even concerned about it about how things are going. Our theology may be even correct. We, we know things are bad and God is good, but then we don't go to the next step. And that is to confess the sin. Nehemiah, Nehemiah boldly asked God to hear his prayer, when, which literally means to hear intelligently with great attention. And I believe there's three key ingredients to this confession. Number one is intensity. Overwhelmed by concern about sin and the awe of God's character, Nehemiah gave himself to prolonged petition and intercession. He prayed, what's it say? Day and night, spending every moment of his time in God's presence. There are times when we need to do this. 
They're very similar to Psalm 88, verse 1, where we read, O Lord God of my salvation, I have cried day and night before thee. There was an intensity to his confession. Secondly, there's an honesty in his confession. He made no attempt to excuse the Israelites for their sin and actually owned his part in their their uh, responsibility. He surveyed the grim record of Israel's past and present failure and he knew that he was not exempt from blame. Notice that he prays, I confess the sins we Israelites including myself. We have acted very wickedly. We have not obeyed. That's a a remarkable thing there. You know, it had been easy for him to say, you know, boy, look at those wicked people. Those wicked ancestors of mine. But instead he looks within and he blames himself. It's so easy for us to blame others. We need to learn from Nehemiah and confess honestly, Lord, I have sinned. I am wrong. I not only want to be a part of the answer, I confess that I'm a part of the problem. So there's intensity, there's honesty, and then thirdly, there's urgency. Nehemiah recognized that sin is not merely a stubborn refusal to obey certain rules, but it's also a defiant act of aggressive personal rebellion against a holy God. He knows that they have dealt very corruptly. He didn't try to candy coat his his sin. He owned it and he called it what it was. There's a story about some Boeing uh, employees who decided to steal a life raft from one of the 747s they were working on. They were successful in getting it out of the plant, but they forgot one thing. The raft came equipped with an emergency locator that's automatically activated whenever the raft is inflated. And so they took the raft out on the river and they got quite a surprise when the Coast Guard helicopter came homing in on the emergency locator. You know, trying to hide our sins from God is impossible. He knows all about them. Numbers chapter 32 and 23 reminds us, be sure your sin will find you out. Friends, we need to recognize that all sin, those things that we have blatantly done or carelessly committed, or those things we have left undone, can be identified and then confessed. I trust we're not trying to hide something today. It's better to confess it than to wait until your sin exposes you. And so we find here, Nehemiah had a concern about the problem. He had a conviction about God's character. And then there's a confession of sin. And fourthly, there's a confidence in God's promises. Nehemiah spends some time in this broken confession, but he doesn't just wallow in it. He owns it. He knows what he did wrong, but he quickly expresses confidence in God's promises. That's what we see in verses 8 through 10. And it's this part of his prayer that Nehemiah recalls the words of Moses about the danger of Israel's apostasy and the promise of divine mercy. His words are a skillful mosaic, if you please, of great Old Testament warnings and promises. He quotes here from Leviticus, from Deuteronomy, from 1 Kings, from 2 Chronicles, and from Psalm 130. 
Now, what was the promise that Nehemiah was getting at? Well, I believe it was twofold. First of all, Israel disobeyed, and so they were sent to a foreign land. That had been fulfilled. The second part was that when the captivity was over, God would send them back to Jerusalem. And they were still waiting for that to be fulfilled. And so Nehemiah prays, Lord, the first part is done. The first part is true. We've disobeyed. We've, we've been sent into captivity. But Lord, you've made a promise to take us back home and to protect us. And that has not happened yet. And I'm claiming that promise that you'll make it happen. Someone once told me, that there were over 3,000 promises in the Bible. And then again, I read later, someone else counted 7,000 promises in the Bible. Now, I don't believe every promise in the book is mine, like the song says, because there are some promises that are for someone other than me. But there are a lot of promises in the Bible. Many promises in God's Word. And I think we need to know God's Word. Nehemiah apparently knew it. If he's quoting from all these different sources here, and we better pray with confidence in God's promises. 1 John 5, 14 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. I wonder this morning, are you confident of God's promises as Nehemiah was? If God said it in his word, do you believe it and claim it? Nehemiah knew God would keep his covenant of love with his people. He also knew that even though God did not need his help, he was ready to make a commitment. That's the fourth, fifth point here. Commitment to get involved. He was ready to make a commitment to get involved. Do you see the progression here in Nehemiah's prayer? His concern about the problem led him to brokenness. And while he was weeping and fasting, he expressed his conviction about God's character. And as he focused in on greatness and awesomeness of his holy God, he quickly was reminded of his own wickedness. And therefore he cried in confession. And after owning his Role in the the nation's depravity, he prayed boldly and with confidence in God's promises. And that leads him to a commitment to do something, to get involved. We see this in verse 11. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. It's been said that prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, but getting God's will done here on earth. Yet for God... God's will to be done here on earth, he needs people to be available for him to be to use. While Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater, and his vision of what needed to be done became clearer. He didn't pray for God to send someone. He simply said, here am I, Lord, send me. He knew that he would have the to he would have to approach the king. He would have to request, hey, I need some time off. I need, well, three years will do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, go to your boss and say, I could, I could use a leave of absence of three years. How about it? 
But he asked God to prosper him. That means to break out, to push forward. He wanted to see God break out on his behalf when he goes to the, to the king to make his request. He's claiming yet another promise. The promise from Proverbs 21.11 says, The king's heart is in, uh, is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he, he will. Sometimes we say, well, I can't go ask my boss for that. Or, I can't do that. I, we couldn't, you know, ask God to, to do this. You know, uh, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Someone has said that the key word in this book is the word so, which occurs 32 different times. Again and again, Nehemiah assesses the situation, is moved to concern, and so is compelled to action. A true measure of our concern is whether or not we are willing to make a commitment to get involved. So, as someone else has said, pray as if everything depends on God, and then work as if everything depends upon you. Someone also had appropriately said, he who kneels before God can stand before anyone. And so we need to take to heart that uh, this message this morning personally, and for not only our personal lives, but for our church. I'm reminded of a college choir which was all set to present a concert in a large church which was going to have a, uh, be a live uh, uh, broadcast by a local radio station. When everything appeared to be ready, the announcer made his final introduction and waited for the choir director to begin. And well, one of the choir members, it was a tenor, he wasn't quite ready. So the director refused to raise his hands to begin and All this time, nothing but silence is being broadcast. And growing very nervous, the announcer, forgetting that his microphone was still on and he could still be heard in the church and on the air, he said in exasperation, Get on with it, you old goat! (laughs) Well, later in the week, the radio station got a letter from one of its listeners a man who had tuned in to listen to the music that was a comfort to him as he sat and listened. But when he heard, get on with it, old goat, he took the message personally. He had been doing nothing to further God's work. And that startled him enough to convict him and get him going again. You know, sometimes we do need a wake-up call, don't we? Maybe you've received that call this morning. And God has said, get on with it, you old goat. Or you young goat. Whatever the case might be. I wonder, where are you in this prayer process right now? Are you concerned about the problem? Do you have a conviction about God's holy character? Are you ready to confess your sins? Do you have a confidence in God's promises? And are you ready to make a commitment to get involved and do God's work? Let's bow in prayer.